From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is filmmaker Maddie Jo. She is Laos' first female filmmaker who is bringing Laotian movies outside of Southeast Asia in powerful ways. Her, her latest film, The Long Walk is out now on VOD and has a physical Blu-ray release through Vinegar Syndrome Films. And folks, if you haven't checked this film out yet or haven't seen our tweets about it, please stop what you're doing and go check it out because it is stunning. Welcome to the show, Patty. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's very early where we're at. It's very late where you're at. <laughs> I think you are the furthest away we have recorded because the I think the first up until now the first we recorded was with was in Morocco. We're farther, yeah. Yeah, the furthest away from us. So thank you so much for staying up late to to do this with us. We're really excited to chat about your film, dude. I much prefer staying up at night to talk to you guys than like waking up in the mornings. I always tell people morning is only for productions and planes. Otherwise, like <laughs> if you don't want bagel or a cup of coffee for me, just like no. <laughs> well, I'm already on my second cup of coffee because I am 
I'm not a morning person either, but we we are here and we're excited. Um, okay, but the first thing we like to do is we like to take it back to the very beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? Oh man, um, I was not a film what I, like filmophilia, you know those mm-hmm. cinephile movie buffs. <laughs> cinephile. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, yeah, I was not a cinephile to begin with. And, you know, I watched a lot of popcorn films. I grew up on the same uh, American Disney stuff that everybody else had. Like, oh, you know, I remember watching Aladdin in the Mm. cinema. I remember watching Little Mermaid in the cinema. And I also come from a family of immigrants. Mm -hmm. I was the first one born in the U.S. So, yay, I like chain migrated my whole family as an anchor baby. (laughs) um, (laughs) Oh, horrible, right? And uh, my father just loved movies, just loved movies. He was an actual film buff in Laos. So he remembers uh, being a little boy and he was, it's actually kind of funny. We're going to get into a lot of my family history because of this film that we chose. He remembers his family immigrated to Laos. They're Vietnamese. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he was born in Laos and he was raised in Laos. So his father was a baker and he used to, you know, he had the cooking and baking skills as a young boy. And he used to like steal his father's butter, which was really expensive. And he would pop popcorn and put them into plastic bags and tie them all with rubber bands. And then he'd camp out in front of the Odeon Theater, it was called or uh, the Sing Lao Cinema. And he would sell popcorn until he made enough money to buy a ticket. And then he'd go watch like, John Wayne Westerns and crap like that. I'm dead serious. Like, he, I like, love that. Film. <laughs> That's the coolest shit. Yeah, it, it's super cool. And I love popcorn. So like, even though I didn't like love film the same way he did, I love popcorn. And so like, you know, it was a, it was a really good uh, origin story for me. And so when he moved to the US, uh, he was so impressed that film was so easily accessible. It must have been a dream come true for him. You oh, know what I, I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, you can just watch film anywhere. And um, what, Just real quick, what year, when did he, what, what year did he come to the States? I just like kind of like thin film history mind trying to think of when he came to the States. 79 or 80. Okay. 80, I think. Okay. I think it was cool. 80. Because I think he was still in the refugee camp in 79. Oh, okay. So, yeah, like in the film. And he got here. We were poor. Like, of course we were poor. We came to the States. I think my mother only had $100, 100 US dollars in her pocket. And there was um, some of our family had already gone over and they sponsored us to go. And so we lived in like this house with all of these relatives for a while, like three families crammed in the house. And I remember one day my dad came home with this big bag in this box. And we were like, what is that? And it was a VCR, you guys. It was like, you know, like the top popped up and Mm -hmm. he said, oh, yeah. It wasn't even the kind that spit it back out. It was the kind where the top popped up and put it in and pressed it back down. I remember those. I had one of those. Yeah, the silver ones. And, um, And he brought home a VCR and our lives changed and I met horror. Because we, he would go every Friday night to the VHS rental stores. Um, I always say this in every interview because it's so vivid to me. Like walking in, they have that awful office carpeting. You know that then <laughs> the carpeting that has no fuzz. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. And it's like a little sticky. It's like a, it feels like yeah, a little sticky, and you don't really know why. Yeah. Oh yes, and oh, it's I'm really not. flat, <laughs> uh, and it's like like cardboard. You could cut it right. 
And it had that smell, that mildewy, musty smell. Always. Every video store had that smell. It sure does. It sure and does. And they had the awesome cutouts that are like bigger than you as a child. So imagine you're looking at Jason with his fucking mask or Michael Myers or like, what's his name? Pumpkinhead. And they're like amazing cutouts. And I was like, I'm pint size now, you guys. I'm like <laughs> literally five foot four, five foot three. Oh. And so as this little girl, I'm like staring up at these like horrific <laughs> like cutouts. And they always have the best video uh, boxes. Do you remember those? Like, they oh, yeah. With foam. Yeah. Oh, so yes. they had foam inside, so you would steal. <laughs> yep. And the the artwork was always was always so like evocative and just it, it really catched memorable. your eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it totally catches your eye. And so I would he let the kids select a film, and he and my mom would select a film. And so sometimes a little bit of horror would sneak into the selection because the like you said the covers were so cool and evocative. That as children, we couldn't help but be attracted to the covers. Mm-hmm. But it was like horrible because I couldn't ever get through a film or I'd have nightmares or I was watching it like behind closed eyes <laughs> because I had chosen a film for the cover. You know, I judged a book by its cover and it was traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember any of those films that you might have uh, watched through your fingers? I remember... Um, I remember all the Freddy Krueger films. I don't remember... Actually, I don't remember fine details like I couldn't tell you all the characters and the stories mm-hmm. from beginning to end I remember Camp Crystal like super vividly because I think that's the first time I stopped fucking too <laughs> as a child because <laughs> there was so much of that in those old 80s films right mm-hmm. and um I remember the whole cabin thing and the first time my parents sent me to camp <laughs> oh no you're like it's the end this is you the know? end this is the end you're shipping like, me off to death <laughs> where's um, jason so i remember a lot of them i remember one that i've never seen and i think i should watch it because i loved the cover so much um and it was called april fool's day and i admired the new sprayed right do you guys remember it's, this? We we actually recently watched it ish for the podcast, and it's I watched good. it for the first time. It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. It's yeah. like campy, funny, ridiculous, but it's oh. so good. And there's you some queer re-watch subtext, some, some queer subtext going on underneath. I just, it's it's good. Is it's it good. intentionally campy and funny, or is it like just um, because it was like, a the campy part? I think it's trying to be funny in parts mm-hmm. of it, okay. but I think oh, the camp good. is a little bit unintentional. But like. Oh, it's, okay. I think the the plot is so crazy and outlandish. That's intentional. I think like the weird okay. places it goes and how like over the top it is. It's yeah. I still haven't seen it, but that cover, I could probably draw it out. Like I remember the positions of the people at the dinner table. You know, some of them are like leaning over the top of each other trying to say hi to her. And she's got her champagne glass and her knife behind, knife her, behind back. her back. Yes. yes. And I just remember this cover forever and it wasn't also an overly sexualized cover which in the 80s right. most of those vhs covers were super overly sexualized um and look at me now i grew up loving champagne too <laughs> <laughs> now do you enter the room with champagne and a knife behind your back yeah, <laughs> i also have really good knife skills you guys oh, I have no. yeah i have oh <laughs> I, I can't even remember the first time my parents put a knife in my hand and said cut vegetables <laughs> So um, did your parents like watch the horror films with you? Like, was it kind of like an experience you guys had together with horror movies? Often no. Because okay. they were the kittier head tolls, you guys. Mom oh, and dad so were watching think- their films. 
Uh, they were like, we're watching cinema. Like, yeah, <laughs> so- we're watching real films. Which, by the way, my dad's watching shit like Robocop and Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> That's horror too. Like, you might not. Yeah, I mean, we, it is. We could right? get into a fight um, about that, but it's it's like basically horror. <laughs> if they were interested, my mother hated that shit, by the way. But if they were, if they were really interested in a film, then we did watch it as a family. I remember having the Robocop, the Terminator, and the uh, Alien experience with my dad. I remember that experience. I remember we used to do something that was so sweet and I don't know if it was normal for other families or not. And this is a really sweet memory I have of my family is, uh, again, my dad, I don't know. He had like the strangest priorities when it came to spending money. Uh, you know, as immigrants, we were very thrifty mm-hmm. a lot of the times, but then like he fucking threw down on a big screen TV. And I don't know if you remember what those big screen TVs were like back then they were like, wide they were and wide they were thick they were heavy. heavy super heavy they were as thick as like three people standing like pressed against each other you know what i mean and um they also had a king-sized bed and we would all jump into the bed with them Aww. all four of us at the time we were four now we're five and we would camp out on the bed and watch because the big screen was in his room. It wasn't in the fucking living room. Hell no. <laughs> the big screen was my mom and dad. And so we would jump on the king size bed and we would watch the movies with them. And I remember the alien experience in the big king size bed with the rose colored bed sheets and the ruffled uh, duvet uh, comforter, right? That's what Americans call it, the ruffled comforter. And this fucking alien on big screen. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. That is such a sweet story. That sounds like sweet. the best way. Like we would sit on the couch and watch like together as a family. But I like the idea of like the bed, like you all are cuddled together. Really sweet. And then we all had like our own blankets and stuff. Like the kids, we I had my own blanket, and then like mom and dad were like against a headboard and on their against all their pillows watching the bed. We were like at the feet, you know. <laughs> oh my god! So I, ha- I have to ask because Alien was a was a formative movie for myself. Did it scare you? It scared the fuck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> it scared me so bad, and it influenced me so much. I didn't say anything about Alien, and because someone had already, many people had already picked Alien, Aliens, and mm-hmm. subsequent Aliens, right? And my friend Alexander did an amazing documentary about the screenwriter of Alien. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Thought I can't remember what it was called. You guys will have to like find it and announce it in the podcast. Alien, mm-hmm. Alexander Philippe. It influenced me in a way that I didn't even realize. And if you've seen my second film, Dearest Sister, there is a scene where uh, the blind girl is looking for her phone, but she's blind and she has to feel for it. But she's entrapped by her cousin who has gone nuts, like trying to, trying to control her basically kind of like misery style. Right. And there's a scene where um, she creeps up and she can just feel like the warmth and the breath of the, of the cousin. And she can tell that she's sleeping, but she can't see. And she's blindfolded and she creeps in like, and her nose like almost touches her cousin's oh, wow. nose as she's like pulling the phone away from under her pillow, trying not to wake up her cousin who has entrapped her. And then the mother ghost visits the blind girl on the terrace and the mother ghost's face comes in like with this heavy breath and she's breathing on her and her face is bleeding and like scraped off. And she's like eye to eye with her daughter on the first ghost visitation, not the first, the motherly ghost visitation. And someone, a critic, a film critic mentioned, wow, it had such alien feels to it in these scenes. And I was just like, it did. (laughs) That's how much it subconsciously influenced me. And I didn't even realize it. 
I haven't seen it since I was a child, you guys. I love hearing those stories. I feel like I hear those stories like more than I ever thought about people being like, oh, this movie influenced me, but I didn't even know until someone else pointed it out. Like, I love that horror movies can really get into our heads so much that they become like a part of our creative process and Mm -hmm. our thought process without even like realizing it. I just think that's so fucking cool that you're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, of course that's alien. Like, (laughs) I just, it's like, it's just so cool. I love that. Yeah. Also, was the uh, the documentary Memory, The Origins of Alien? Yes, that's it. Yep. That's okay. it. That's what I thought. Yeah, I, I wanted to actually see that one. It, it's started doing festival things and I always missed it, but it's it's that's on my right. list it to was watch. A fa- I thought I was like, that sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. I yes. know that I've heard of this before. Yes. Okay, yeah. Cool. So like Alien has influenced many people. And like I said, even my friend Alexander Philippe made this like incredible documentary, uh, Memory, The Origin of Alien because he was so influenced and, um, you know, impressed probably at a young age as well. I think he's the same age as I am uh, by alien. And I think that that's one of those things. Like we all grew up with like you, like your podcast is called scarred for life. We all grew up with these scars from these films that stayed with us into adulthood. And it's even funnier when as adults, some of us become filmmakers yeah, you know, so the scars have become useful. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually like transitions to our next question about like now. So like, what draws you to horror now as an adult and as a filmmaker? Honestly, for myself, of course, there was a the love of horror, right? As you, mm-hmm. you guys can tell, that I adore horror films. I adore genre films, um, and it's not just film. It's everybody loves to be a little bit scared and thrilled. It's like the campfire stories, you guys, like. The, the ghost stories by the fireplace or just even the girls like mysterious chatter like oh my god you know the other day I was home alone and then you're like what that those things are thrilling and fascinating and they're intriguing and so that super super sucked me into horror but there were a few other reasons too like I started out with a ballet background oh, and okay. if you look at the majority Ooh. of ballet they're horror stories they're genre stories Swan Lake is a reverse werewolf. You know, the full moon comes out and she turns into a swan or turns into a human. Yes, the full moon comes out or death turns into a human. How did I ever think about it like a werewolf movie? Well, now I like it even more that I that you Darren put it in Darren Aronofsky said that once and I was just like, I was in, a, in some kind of classroom with him and he said that and I was just like, it's true. It's a reverse werewolf story. Um, so Giselle cool. is a ghost film or a zombie film, however you'd like to... Uh, categorize it Le Corsair is an action film there's fucking pirates you know (laughs) there's pirates and the kidnapping um there's just La Fille du Ferron which in English is uh, the the pharaoh's daughter that ballet is a fucking time travel film with mummies there are literally mummies in this ballet that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) so it's you know I think horror has always been something that I've loved and even when I wasn't in the career of film it's kind of followed me. But most of all, when I became a filmmaker, um, one of the things that my husband and I sat down and talked about is how associative, uh, how associative horror is. And I don't just mean that everyone knows how to be scared. That's an answer that I give everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. A love story in America does not ring true to a love story in India or in Asia. And if you guys saw a comedy in Asia, you wouldn't laugh. Like, you just be like, what? You know, like you won't get it. But a horror movie, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Everybody gets it. But the audience, the audience of horror is fucking amazing. They will watch a horror movie no matter what culture, mm-hmm. what country or what language it's from or in. You know, it's yep. it's nuts. 
they're experimental. They're more experimental than those artsy fartsy motherfuckers. You think that they like know the you know most obscure and surreal artsy film, right? Ding ding ding. They're so much more like open and accepting. They'll watch like a fucking film from sub-Sahara Africa and get it and make an effort to understand the traditions and the cultures, you know? It's yeah, well, it's watch amazing. something that's made for a thousand dollars and be like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. Like we, I feel like horror fans are will always sometimes not, but like are very good at finding the good in these yeah. movies from every kind of background, place, cult. Yeah. Like there's always at least one person championing it. I think that there's more than, more often than not, they are. More often than not. Yeah. Of course, you're always going to get the douche nozzle. That's like, oh, this is your heart. You know, like, uh, I have to uh, read. You have to read. <laughs> that is... <laughs> like, what language are they speaking? Uh, English from Ireland, asshole. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> but you're always gonna find one of those but i think of the course. majority of horror people are not that That's i agree experience. with that i think a lot of horror fans are so eager to watch anything scary and cool they're like i don't give a shit if yeah. it's in another language like if you're gonna scare exactly. the shit out of me or give me like a story i've never seen before then like we will do anything the things i have the lengths i've gone to find movies on the internet <laughs> to like watch them like I love found footage movies. So I like, and sometimes they are very hard to find. So like the, the Did you hours see that... Asylum yet? I love that <laughs> oh, found footage. That movie is Gondiam great. Gondiam oh, Asylum is so great. It's so good. That movie is incredible. It is I, so I have good. evangelized that movie all across Twitter when oh, I, really? I found it. Oh Terry, yeah. 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 Terry actually got, was the one who t- introduced me to it. I wasn't sure if you guys knew about it in the West because like it came out in cinemas here. Do you know what I mean? Because of course, uh, Asia is like. I would have loved to have seen that in the cinema. We I just saw it on my, it my was TV really at home. Scary in cinema, you I can imagine. It's terrifying. The, bell, like, the close-up when she like with her eyes and she like, makes that really horrifying sound. With the hands really behind her the head face. is what always gets oh, me. Oh, the hands. Just coming up behind. (laughs) But it's having, I think it's because people are starting to really discover it. More and more people in the West are starting to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Terry talked about it. I've been talking about it. And it's streaming at a bunch of places now, like on Western (laughs) streaming services. So more people have seen it, which is very exciting. Yeah. I forgot what I was saying because I got excited about this. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I'll go to ridiculous lengths to find movies on the internet that are from like from like women in like there's one from like a woman found footage director who made something in like 2000 and I like spent days trying to find it and I did um but yeah like the, the lengths that we will go to watch good horror movies is incredible and even if we don't think the lengths that I will go to to convince my friends who are um kind of like actually artsy fartsy filmmakers <laughs> that they are uh horror filmmakers or that they are actually genre people is funny too because like um I have my friend who made Kathy Kathy which is a uh an African film oh, and yeah. um his, the director's name is Mipti um what's his last name Ma- Masia yeah Mipti Masia he made a film called Kathy Kathy and it's about the afterlife and um he did something that was really awesome which was like in the afterlife all their they're like great and he's oh. like, this is what black people look like when they die. They turn this like ashen color, right? And um, it's a gorgeous film. It's an incredible film. But I was like, dude, you're a genre filmmaker. Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, he's like, adopt other filmmakers into being genre filmmakers. 
<laughs> the same with the wound. That was also done by, by my friend in South Africa, John Trenbrough. Um, and oh, I love his producers, producers Elias Ribeiro and um, Kat Pantigrew. And that film is about the, the rituals of, um, it's the rituals of this tribe where they go through a cir- circumcision ritual oh, and then okay. they're trapped in this camp to heal by themselves and no one they have to care for themselves but it's in a it's very homoerotic Mm. and yet you know in that tribe like being gay is not accepted right and so like a lot of horrible tension and anxiety ensues from this process and they're like fevered because they just got like circumcised (laughs) and they're older boys already you know they're not like children it's like they're well into their manhood and I was like, you made a horror film, dude. That's horrific. That's like super fucking scary. And this poor, this poor guy who's going through this confusion emotionally and hormonally, and he's stuck in this place where he can't get out. And he's surrounded by people who maybe are persecuting him, who are persecuting him. Or What's it called? Can't acknowledge uh, the wound. The wound. This looks incredible. I have it on letter. I pulled it up on yeah. letterbox, and I was like, yeah. uh, yep. And yeah, Kati Kati, I also put on my watch list. I was like, I'll yes. be watching this later. And this. Kati and the Wound. I mean, they don't, they would not be categorized as horror films, but I was just like, you guys, you don't even oh. know it. You're horror. <laughs> and I just, I feel like people don't talk about, talk a lot about like films that come from Africa, like horror films from Africa. Like, well, you know, Africa as a continent, not as like, right. Like, it is a very big, it is a very big continent with lots of like, yes. <laughs> but yes. yeah. Anyway. That's so cool. Oh, there's so many great films out of there, you guys. Like, incredible films. And some of them, like, go off the fucking rails because they have <laughs> such a full horror culture, you know? I, I spoke about this with my friend, uh, Kayla Janice, who did that documentary. Oh, yeah. yeah. Woodland, um, Woodland Stark and Days Bewitched. And I said, whenever people think of folk horror, they always think of, like, white people mm-hmm. and witches right pilgrims buckles buckles all over buckles on your hat buckles on your shoes buckles all over the damn place <laughs> and, um, the reality is like we've been having witches and black magic for centuries before all y'all <laughs> I was okay this is so funny I was just talking about this with Terry because we're we're watching a bunch of folklore movies for like our mini episodes and I was like Asian folklore is my ah. favorite because it's not like it's very different than like versus because I feel like in like Western folklore, it's very much like against Catholicism and stuff, but like in Asian, yes, which it's I guess, a very Christian slant. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like Asian, which I know is a very big word, but like Asian folklore is so different and so creepy and cool yes. because there's so much more like centuries of background, like yes. of context. Like, I don't know. You have to anyway. watch Belief, the Possession of Janet Moses. That's a off indigenous horror from New Zealand. And that's real. That's a documentary. What? And that's like, yes, that's a documentary and it's fucking crazy. And that is also, um, that's where I learned that a lot of indigenous people in New Zealand have a similar belief to us in Asia, which is like crazy, right? How small is the world? Um, where we believe in the spirits that can dwell in the land or in nature, like in a tree mm-hmm. or a rock. And that happens when they, the kids um, steal some kind of statue as a prank. But then it's like an, a really old statue and then shit starts happening. Mm. And oh. Janet Moses gets like um, possessed basically. And so they believe like, oh shit, it's because they disturbed this. Maybe it was a sacred thing, right? And they disturbed it. So maybe 
it's angry and spirit. We call it in my language, Dauti or Dautan. Um, maybe Dauti, like that was inside of it, has possessed our sister because, you know, we did mm. wrong. And so they return the statue, but shit just gets crazier and um, it's wild. And she dies. Like she literally dies. Wow. And the documentary wow. has reenactments wow. from it. And it's from the, the beliefs of um, the indigenous people in New Zealand. So and the stories are wild. Well, I just added that to our list because we are like, like maybe I said, we are going through full core. So I definitely, that's on our list to check out for sure then. Yeah, that's like legitimate real life full core. Heck yeah. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to talk about your, your filmmaking. Um, so you said you were, you were born in the United States and then you went back to Laos. Is that correct? Yes. And now you're making films in Laos. What's, what's that like? You know what? Again, when we start talking about at the killing fields, it actually, um, it actually is very organic the way okay. it worked out that way because most people who have who were born in Lao and who are like Lao Americans as they call themselves um, have deep culture shock when they come back to Lao because mm. it's not the Lao that they had glorified in their heads. It's not this special little Lao that was pre-war or pre-revolution. Um, this imaginary Lao that they built up in their head because they've never visited Laos. And so when they come back and they see that it's changed so much, I mean, more than 40 years have gone by. Right. Of course, places change, you guys. Of course, things evolve. Um, and, and even our language has changed. The way we speak Lao here is really different from the way that um, Lao Americans speak it. And they go through, uh, it's really unsettling and disturbing. And I think that there's a lot of uh, disappointment or like their expectations aren't matched and um, they can't hang. A lot of them can't hang and they end up uh, leaving and having terrible experiences or feeling really um, outsidered and othered, mm. you know, they feel like outsiders and othered. And I was super lucky because like my parents, even though they were refugees, they didn't feed me that story. They didn't feed me this imaginary loud because I think my mother logically understood that um, in when we do come back or if we ever come back and that's what refugees actually are meant to do some refugees leave and then when their country goes through a moment of peace they come back you know mm -hmm. because that's a point or some people never come back they just stay and they're just nationalized forever but my mother always imagined that we would go back if not to live to visit often and so she didn't want me to get stuck on this idea that Lao could only be Lao like it was in 1975 you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was easy for me to come back with an open mind and to accept the changes because I didn't have this preconceived notion of what this country was supposed to be like. And that helped a lot. But I have to admit, you guys, it does suck for a lot of people coming back when they can barely speak the language. The language has changed. Things aren't the way they expected. Or the worst part, the worst part is when their parents have built up this like crazy origin story. Mm -hmm that's semi-fabricated and then they come back and yeah and they find out that it's semi-fabricated because I don't blame them they were escaping trauma and they were leaving a life behind and so they were on new soil so what do you do you have a fresh new start now you have children born in the U.S. you can give them this like amazing story they wouldn't know how would right. they ever know right yeah but i've i've witnessed it a couple of times where people have come back and they've realized that their parents fabricated a story about their they made an origin story you know yeah is genre filmmaking big in lao 
or no? No. No? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, there's one young man, he's, uh, he does a lot of special effects mm. and he's self-taught. He's really great. He's super talented. His name is Pom Sayamon Kun and he loves sci-fi and he loves genre. And I noticed that he does a lot of like almost God of War like genre stories in his oh, short okay. films, which is really cool. Like, uh, modern day style. So like, I remember his first short film, like there were, there was some like, death game being played at a high school with these two girls and um the end like and amounted to like this big boss battle with like flaming spear and everything you know and i was like okay dude oh, yeah. like, that's I'm amazing to see your first feature someday he's <laughs> 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 gonna be oh, off yeah. the rails then uh there was there's another filmmaker who did a thriller for his first film but after that subsequently started doing like rom-coms and romance oh. dramas so um maybe he i don't know like I'm not sure what happened with that. And um, he did At the Horizon, which is a fun thriller. And then um, there's another young man who's working on his first feature right now. And he seems to like genre film as well. And I think that his uh, his current project that he's working on is like semi-sci-fi, semi-thriller-y. Not like super sci-fi, but like it's got a mind link aspect to it okay so but i don't know much about it so that's it wow <laughs> i think i've named like three people wow. <laughs> yeah wow and so yes. so you obviously are very into genre you're on your third like genre movie and so the, yeah. the long walk can you tell us a little bit about the long walk for those who are not familiar with this incredible film the long walk is like incredibly difficult to categorize or define like it is a science fiction film it is a murder mystery. It is a serial killer noir. It is also a ghost film. And it is also a time travel film. Like, it's all of the above, you know? it's I, I like to call it, like, Back to the Future, but super fucked up and in loud. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and with a ghost buddy. And with it's a ghost doc, buddy. It's, like, it's, a ghost doc, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. Yeah. And she doesn't speak, but she just she doesn't is taking... Speak. Just very, and she brushes yeah. her hair, not like Doc. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I love that. Right? I'm just like, I'm just like, yeah, this is this, this is, is all working in my head. <laughs> so the long walk is it's incredible. Um, there's a lot happening. It's very complex. A lot of really like pieces fall together as it's going on, and like the story is so intricate and sad and good and i'm just curious like where the like where you kind of got the idea for the story and kind of the um the impetus impetus beginning of i don't know <laughs> the beginning of the story the origin story, the origin story. <laughs> and i've told it so many times that it is an origin story now but um thankfully it's not <laughs> fabricated because there are a lot of people out there who remember when i first started pitching the long walk it was hard to sell initially, you guys, because like I said, it's a really difficult film to encapsulate. Mm -hmm. And you're right, Mary Beth, there's a lot that happens in the film. And it's really hard to even like try to tell the story of the film. Even in like a few minutes, you, you're like, oh, oh, and then, and then, and then this happened. Oh, wait, wait, and then. But it's also like this commentary on neo-imperialism and colonialism. And, and, and it's also like, you know, like, and then the, it's also a statement on oppression of, you know, males oppressing women and blah, you, you have all kinds of crazy shit happening in this film. And so the origin actually was uh, 
two main things. And the first one was silly, actually. It was kind of dumb. Um, it was, I started learning a lot more about films. I started becoming more of an exposed cinephile um, because I started going to film festivals since mm. I had become a filmmaker. And I was seeing all kinds of stuff, a lot of things that I loved. But at the, a lot of the serious festivals, the non-genre festivals, I mean, the, the famous prestigious ones that like are the dreams of every filmmaker should get into, right. I started noticing like there was a pattern for Southeast Asian style films and not even just Southeast Asian, like developing country films, you know, there's like the, or sometimes even for Asian film, let's just go, let's just go monolith and big and wide, like Africa, right? Like, let's just talk about the continent. The idea was that we were these mystical Zen supernatural Mm. creatures that like we could just enter the room and have this presence and you knew we were a sage and you knew we were wise. We don't have to say anything. In fact, all we could do was sit together in a very poor situation, like under a palm tree mm. and in the ugliest wide fucking shot ever. But, you know, like seriously, the ugliest wide <laughs> shot. We could sit without moving, staring at a palm frond, waving in the wind, you know, but it's mm. a really ugly shot because someone probably filmed it with their iPhone. And, um, and it's not very well color corrected. <laughs> and you can just say something like food, Lao food, mm. authentic Lao food. I really love it. La with sticky rice. <laughs> and everybody's like standing ovation, you know. Bravo! Academy Bravo. Award, Academy Award, all the awards, all the awards. You know, and I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm serious. You guys, are like, what the fuck is this? Why is this the the authentic Asian film? Yeah, you know, like I spoke to you for Dead Central, and it was always just like sad Asian who has gone through trauma. Born. Yeah, it's the only way that you can depict what Westerners perceive as the authentic South African Asian, like again, big monolith words that mean nothing, but we think mean something. There's a reason why the monolith is used is because like we've, they put baby in a corner. Okay. And baby's (laughs) a lot bigger than they think. Like baby's baby's not a baby. Don't put baby in a corner. Don't put baby in a corner. Baby can't fit in a corner. (laughs) Yeah, baby don't fit in the corner. Like, baby has a higher population than all of North America combined. <laughs> different cultures so, and people and socioeconomic classes. Like, different hmm. stories. And sometimes I wonder, like, because that's what's successful, poverty porn, like, I started to think, like, are we making these films because we think that that's what will work? You know? Like, maybe, maybe my fellow filmmakers want to make some other fucked up films and they choose to make these like weird, like uh, nothing really happens. People sit still and frozen and just stare at wind for half an hour and like a windmill rolls for a while, you know, or you have like a shot of an escalator for 10 fucking minutes doing nothing. Maybe this is what works. And so that's what they're all trying to do. And I went, that's not very fair, you know, but the worst was when uh, some white person a European came up to me and asked me why I didn't make a more authentic film after they saw Dear Sister. I was like, excuse me, bitch, please. Like what? Come again. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wanted to, I was so shocked. I didn't know how to react. 
I just yeah. said, what? How? And she's like, you know, it's kind of vulgar that you would tell this story with all these like rich people driving like Lexuses and having like champagne in an Italian restaurant and like stuff like that and living in such a fine house. I'm like, you don't think we have fine houses in Laos? Like in Laos, everyone lives in a dirt floor place and has yeah. no electricity and straw, they're not allowed. Straw hut. To, uh-huh. yeah. straw hut. Yeah. No one's this allowed to have electricity money. Electricity that you're seeing on my face. This is like the power of a billion fucking candles. And that's why I'm a fanboy. <laughs> it's really hot. And then I'm going to accidentally burn my house down for this podcast because you find me to have so many fucking candles for this, you know? <laughs> but like literally um, this oh person God. said that. And wow, I, I was a bit offended. Not a bit. A, a lot bit. I was going to say, a bit. Yeah. I would have been like, I'm going to burn the house down. I'm going to burn this yeah. house down. I'm going to grab my 500 candles and burn your house down because that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah, the wax is dripping on me. One second, one second. <laughs> and then I'm going to get you like, with my birthday candle. <laughs> I did not insinuate like uh, immolation of a human being. I'm so sorry. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I was just like, have you been to my country? Do you speak my language? Like, what the fuck do you know about my culture yeah. and my language and my people? Yeah, you know what I mean. And it yeah. was so offensive. And then I might have gotten really wasted and called my husband and said, "We all make fucking authentic poverty porn, Chris. <laughs> fuck them, fuck them. We have to make their stupid fucking poverty porn." But we're gonna do it in our terms. This is gonna be a serial killer. There's gonna be like a ghost, and it's gonna be in rural Laos in a hut on a dirt road. And you know, my poor husband, he he's always stuck at home with the dogs while I'm like traveling all over the fucking world with my films, right? And he's like probably like with his beer taking notes, like, yeah, okay, uh serial killer film in poverty check, foreign dirt check, road. Check, check, wow, check, got it. Okay, see you when you come home, darling. <laughs> and look what you have now. Yeah, and I like it. Look at us now, the long walk. Like it is a hilarious satire of poverty porn. Actually, <laughs> I love I love a spite fueled origin story for a movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's rage and spite fueled. I came down on this like with brimstone and fire. And actually, I kind of thought that it was going to ruin all chances I had at festivals. <laughs> I did. I really did. I was like, oh shit, nobody's gonna select me because anybody can see that I'm like you know, kind of backhanding the stereotype of what a Asian art film should be, you know, an mm-hmm. Asian art house film. Um, and also they or the ones who don't get it might think that it was too inauthentic. You know what I mean? Because like uh, my characters weren't ruminating enough because too much happens in the film. <laughs> like, I mean, you guys have seen those films, right? They're hard to oh, get yeah. through. Uh-oh. And um <laughs> And I was really surprised to see the attention that it received. But then, you know, I did a bad thing in generalizing the art world, too, because, of course, they get they're at that level because they've also seen many films. So there were plenty of like closet genre fans in the art house world that literally were like, we love genre film. And what you did by like molding art house and genre together is exactly what we would love to see again we love we love this there should be more of this there's a lot of it and it needs to be discovered um and even a lot of them would come out to me and say like we want to promote this more we want to push it more but we're worried about our audiences who have an expectation but that's Mm -hmm. the point of a festival right is to Mm -hmm. like defy expectations yes 
I'll, I'll tell you the, the thing when I sat down to watch this, cause I got it from the, from Kayla, our wonderful PR rep. Um, and I was, I sat down to watch it and it just immediately like pulled me in and I'm like, there's so much going on here. And what I really appreciated about the story was that it didn't, sometimes when you have a movie that that builds to the disturbing nature that this film does get to, there's a lot of like, see, look at what we're doing. Here's a big sign pointing down. I'm making a serial killer movie or something like that. And this never mm-hmm. does. It lays out all of these little things, all these little nuggets. It doesn't hold your hand. It just says, no, no. this movie, we're going to go on this journey. And so I'm watching this and I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm cluing in about the time travel aspect. I'm seeing this. Why does he have these fingers? Like, oh, there's all these like questions that I'm mm-hmm. having. And then as it starts to build and build and build, it just lays you in these things. Out. Yeah. But it doesn't yeah. do it in, in a, in a big, like I, you think like in like Hollywood, particularly like a, mm. a, um, a revelation that would happen in this film would be like this big, bah, there'd be like this loud music. It'd be like pointing to it. It'd be like all the stuff. And I'm like, no, this is much more of a quiet film, but it builds to such a disturbing core that by the end of it, I was like genuinely distraught disturbed sad yeah. and i was thinking about it um I, I watched it for the first time two weeks ago and i have not stopped thinking about it since then and i just love the way the story is constructed i want people to continue to think about it i once told my manager when he asked me what kinds of films that i wanted to make i i told him um i want films that stay with people i want films that have a need to exist and have a reason to exist i don't maybe i'm naive or dumb (laughs) I don't get this whole like you know reinventing the wheel thing that everyone's doing like Mm. the remake and the reboot and etc we probably can't do it better than the original and the original is classic and legendary because it's fucking awesome right so why am I going to try and fix what ain't broke I love stories that stay with you just like that like my favorite film is Ratatouille and Black Swan and Coco and I can like probably recite every scene in order from beginning to end because those films have bored their ways into my into my brain I can like close my eyes and vividly see the scenes from those films and they stay with you and you think about it you can watch them again you can re-watch them and still feel like you're gaining something new and still enjoy them and these are the kinds of films I told my manager that I wanted to make because otherwise what's the point like what's a, what am I here for? Why am right. I even making films? They're not making an impact. I believe that out there, there's someone, there's an audience who are looking for a specific kind of film that they haven't seen made yet. And I hope I'm the one who makes those films that they feel like haven't been made yet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That that got like really serious. It did. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> but also like. The long walk, I guess, besides the whole fuck you to boxing in mm. Asian film and mm-hmm. boxing in art house film, um, you know, that's just my really crass sense of humor. So when that person said that I was vulgar, she was right. She was completely <laughs> right. Um, but also, when we were writing the film, we lost our dog, Mango, oh. who he was the most beautiful and best boy in the world, you guys. And he was a dog that I didn't expect to get. I got him later in life. He was, I think, around eight years old when we adopted him from my brother and his wife uh, because that he needed to be rehomed. Their their big bloodhounds were not treating him well. And he was a weird fucking dog, like weird looking. He looked like a swan. Like I'm not even joking, guys. He was a whippet. Is he the whippet? Like, oh, yes. 
Yes, he's the whippet. So they look like these um, medium-sized greyhounds. Oh my god! And the, he had like this beak nose and this mm-hmm. long neck, and he was like super elegant and delicate. And I was like, "What the heck is this? Is this isn't a dog." <laughs> <laughs> and somehow that dog, like a film, became my most trusted companion. I have mm-hmm. so many vivid memories of this dog, and this dog was everywhere with me. Um, it went to it taught ballet classes with me. It um, waited in the offices when I was taking ballet class and he was on set. He was a set dog. He was on set during Dentally. Well, he was an actor in Dentally and he was on Dearest Sister. Then he passed away while we wrote the script. And like, again, talking about uh, loss and regret, the, the loss was so painful of losing Mango. Like we, both my husband and I were just so shaken yeah. But, you know, when you have this best friend, you just don't know how to react to it. When you have to euthanize a dog. Oh. Um, yeah, like, yeah. he was 17 years old, and you have to euthanize oh him. They God. can't really... So yeah, they can't tell you, like, if it's time to go or not. And, like, um, I have a lot of guilt about whether we should have done it earlier or, you know, don't, I don't know if he was in pain or not. Um, and we kept asking the vets and the vet in Asia, they're not like the American vets. The American vets will be like, yeah, let's put them down, right? Like Americans are very quick to euthanize. Um, but an Asian vet, maybe because of our Buddhist background, they're just like, we cannot make this decision. You need to make that decision. Oh, and, wow. yeah. It's a hard and decision. So too. all we would Holy do shit. was ask them like, how is he doing? Like, His heart's still strong. And it wasn't until like he stopped eating that we had to do that and it really bled into the film you know and that's where the the factor of euthanization came in and also thinking about losing my mother who had cancer and chose to not be on life support and chose to not have chemotherapy because she was already stage four and so she she couldn't understand why we would prolong such a painful existence for her. And she said, because she was very much in, you know, her mental capacity was strong all the way to her dying day. And she said, I don't want you to prolong my suffering. What's the point of chemotherapy that the doctor recommends? Because the doctor also said that I'm in stage four and that the cancer has spread through my entire body. So like, why are we going to just make me feel sick and make me feel pain just let me go home and let me pass and i think you see a lot of these elements in the long walk yeah that really uh that really brings it together <laughs> um <laughs> i i just want to say that um well first of all i want to give you a big if i could give you a big hug through the screen i would right now <laughs> um i know what i know that feeling of having to make that decision about euthanizing a pet because like i had a a cat that was like my best friend got me through like hard shit and it passed away. And it's so hard. I know how hard it is. So I'm giving you a hug. <laughs> Virtually. Oh, I, would, I would grab my cats now and hug them for you, but they're kind of feral and I might lose an eye. <laughs> please, don't, please don't lose an eye. <laughs> <laughs> like I literally have holes in my shoulders and chest because like I try to shoulder sit them sometimes yep. and it doesn't work. <laughs> Oh man. See my cat, that's where she wanted to sit on my right shoulder and she yeah. just wanted to perch right there. 
all the time, yeah. no matter what she I was, was doing. She was a shoulder cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so adorable. Oh, yeah, man. my little feral cat uh, loves to shoulder sit my husband only, but she won't shoulder sit me. <laughs> rude. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. So rude. Oh my gosh. <sighs> okay you guys this is like and you know it's oh that crashing sound that you just heard was yeah. definitely one of those two cats going fucking nuts <laughs> oh if i was oh, if i was if i was at my my house that would be happening in the background my cats are not feral but they act feral sometimes so i mean <laughs> Mary, it's it's not a podcast episode without without some cat doing something because Mary Beth's uh, <laughs> Siamese cat likes to play with those door stoppers. They go. Bar, 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 bar. She oh, likes to play with those. Uh huh. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, oh. she's dumbass. Yeah. I love her, but she's not here in this creepy cabin. But if there, if a cat, <laughs> if there's a sound of a cat here, um, I have to go because <laughs> I'm no, haunted. because then it's become the other genre of film that I really love and have just started to discover. It's become the genre of cat horror. Mm. Uh, my husband's been introducing me to cat horror because he knows I like animals. And usually, like, they don't kill the cat in cat horror. It's usually the cat killing people, <laughs> you know? Um, so there are a lot of these old, like, 70s films, like Eye of the Cat or uh, Uncanny Tales of have the Cat seen, or whatever. Have you seen The Un- Uninvited? No. Oh, it's it's like a cat that has, like, a parasitic cat inside of it. And it's incredible. It's like, a, it's, incre- it's, like a, it's a super cheesy, like creature feature, but That's it's incredible. Something I have to write down now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, like I have a whole like list of cat genre films that I've been watching. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> guys, this podcast is like nuts. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. I mean, like, seriously, I, cry every time I talk about my mother and mango and it's been thousands of times that I've had to tell this the story because that's mm-hmm. the inception as you said of the film but in it, it never gets easier no. just like no. you know Terry when you talk about your good kitty it doesn't get easier no now. like that's been like five six six years now that I had to put yeah. it down and it's still I mean obviously get you know teared up just thinking about it every single time yeah Time. I don't know why people always say that. They say like um it gets easier with time or you know, or people move on, you'll move on. And it's like nobody fucking moves no. on. Like no. moving on is such a bullshit concept. Unless maybe I got concussed and had amnesia or something, then maybe I can move on. <laughs> like Yeah. And I feel like people just don't want to accept the fact that grief is like probably gonna be a part of your life, but grief also has very different like Grief is so different for everybody and also evolves so much for everybody. Like it's not mm-hmm. always being like stuck in sadness. I don't know. Like, right. I just but feel like we have to weird. Consume oh, you. Yeah. Yes. That's what this film was about. No, yeah. I was going to say. And regret consumes the old man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like the selfishness of grief that can come yes. with grief and like how. And then he ends up inflicting this cycle of pain, yes. even on himself as a little boy going back to the yes. past, inflicting the cycle of pain which has basically entrapped this girl as well. And she's like mm-hmm. stuck in this unforgiving loop, this unforgiving vortex of loss and regret, you know, and selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. And I was telling Terry, I was like, this is just like a portrayal of grief. You never see where like the negative side of grief, like you're not going to like grief. I feel like grief in movies is a very kind of linear like depiction and your film really makes like 
the selfishness of grief and like what you can really, the damage you can do to yourself and the way you portray that in such a unique, fascinating way is like, it's an absolutely beautiful and incredible and heartbreaking, but like incredibly necessary. Cause I feel like, especially in horror grief is seen in a very, in a very like particular way. It's like, you're very yeah. sad and a monster that is your grief comes up and you've got to defeat the monster. And then the yeah. grief you've is succeeded. contained. You've, you've beat or, the like, yeah, like you beat the grief. Or, or somebody has cry cries and sobs and then like, and then, uh, then they like find out that there was a ghost here and then they solve the murder mystery and then they stop having the cry cries because they help the ghost, you know? And mm-hmm. yeah, there's like a, like a sun coming through the window and the sun comes like, through the wow. window or like the worst is when like the grief makes them just histrionic and hysterical, you yeah. know, like mm-hmm. the, the crazy woman trope, which I do, by the way, like the crazy woman trope, um, because I do think that women get gaslit a lot and get pushed oh, to yeah. the edge a lot. And it's a, it's a reality. Like we do go through a lot of like mental trauma but sometimes the portrayal of it is so fucking shallow. Do you know what I mean? Like the, oh, the yes. things that people do because of the grief and the torment they've gone through or because they've been gaslit so damn hard or because society cannot accept the way they grieve um, pushes them to a certain edge. But in horror films or in a lot of general genre films, like, oh, I'm just out. I'm just out. No, I'm really crazy. You know, yeah. I'm just shouting to have outbursts and stuff. And like, it's hard to take seriously, right? <laughs> yeah. And like, again, like you said, like, I think there are some great movies that do that, but you're like, The Long Walk is such like a unique perspective on grief as destructive and grief isn't always having to cry cries or like, it's yeah. such a weird cycle. And like you said, it can inflict pain in a cycle to other people in ways you don't expect. Yeah. And it's just like, heart shattering but so good and all trauma is like that all trauma has this ripple effect and i think that the long walk is a very extreme portrayal of ripple effect because ripple effect is also from the time travel and also from the Mm -hmm. actions of the old man and uh how the consequences ripple out through through his present or through the future however you want to put it and um this is not just grief. This is also trauma because like yeah. the traumas that he's inflicted to the girls when he becomes like the darkest side serial killer ever, you know what I mean? When he becomes a monster and the traumas that the little boy of becoming that old man, becoming that version of the old man, becoming that monstrous serial killer. Um, this is something that I think, of course, a long walk really, uh, really amped that ante up. but. Um, it's something that people don't always talk about. I think people want to bury shit like that under the rug. They want to be like, okay, okay. Like we talked about it and it's fine now, or it's embarrassing to bring up or let's just disregard it. Let's just, let's just ignore it. You know? And you see that a lot. And it's not just death and loss that can cause that any kind of trauma can cause that abuse can cause that not acknowledging a person for who they really are um, can cause that, you know, like, yeah. Um, well, maybe that's an interesting segue to the movie you brought with you today, <laughs> Maddie. Um, so what film are you, ta- are we talking about today that you brought? Actually, uh, yeah, I think I mentioned it a couple times in this conversation. We are talking about what I consider one of the scariest films from my childhood. And that is The Killing Fields by yes. 
Roland Jaffe. Is that how you say his name? I Jaffe? think so. Jaffe? I Jaffe. believe Jaffe. so. Yeah. yeah. Roland. So um, in The Killing Fields, The Killing Fields is the real life story of a friendship between two journalists, an American and a Cambodian during the bloody Khmer Rouge takeover of Cambodia in 1975, which led to the death of two to three million Cambodians during the next four years under Pol Pot's regime until he was toppled by the intervene, intervening Vietnamese in 1979. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you brought a movie <laughs> with you about genocide. Um, why? What? <laughs> what? Why was this the movie your scarred for life pick? I mean, besides the obvious, it's about horrific historical atrocities. How, yeah. So take us back. How did you see it? We want to hear all of that yeah. kind of stuff. First of all, I had told you guys a beautiful story about, you know, cuddling up with mom and dad on a mm-hmm. king size bed with the ruffled floral spread and the big, big screen TV and et cetera, and the bowl of popcorn. This film was the same situation, except oh, wow. this was not a child pick. This was not a child pick. And this was before I was even, I think this was even before we started doing like, hey, you can pick a movie every week too. I was so young. I was so young when I saw this film. This film came out in 1984, but I think I saw it when I was four years old. Uh, So maybe a year or two after it came out. So I was four or five years old. I remember it. And not only did I see it once and it scarred me and I had no understanding of the film. I recall later in life, I was still a child. I don't know if we fucking owned it or what. Like, literally, I don't know. My, my father played it again. My mother couldn't watch it. And he sat my older brother and I down and he paused the film during traumatic moments, rewind, play it again and tell us, don't look away. Don't look away because this is what I went through. This is how people in Southeast Asia we all went through this. We all encountered this. And you need to know your background and the trauma that we left behind. And you need to understand that your life in America was built on the backs of these people. Your dad yeah, was not fucking around, man. Yeah, my dad never fucked around, you guys. My dad that's a, Your dad was like, hey, you're going to appreciate what the fuck you yeah. have right the fuck now. And this movie is, yeah. oh my God. Oh my God. That just took my breath away. <laughs> and Good I Lord. do appreciate what I have, by the way. I think that the reason why I can be such a cowboy filmmaker, because like, I think you guys have probably seen like behind the scenes pictures of my film sets. They're wild, right? Like it's like 10 of us making a fucking movie in the jungle. And, um, <laughs> and I think the reason why I can go through so much crazy shit and why I'm super resilient is because I realize that like nothing I will go through in my lifetime, I think, I hope, will ever even hold a candle to what, you know, Dipan in Cambodia, um, what he went through or what even my parents went through, which my parents didn't go through a massive genocide like that. Because Laos didn't have a genocide as bad as that. We had a we had a large brain drain. We had a large persecution era, which we'll talk about because it's part of the trauma of this film and my father reminding me. Um, but imagine being a child under ten years old, and there's a scene when they're still in in the city. They're still in Phnom Penh, and all the journalists are being rounded up and they see the Khmer Rouge starting to come into the city and being celebrated. And they see like 
these other guys, these other militants or soldiers being kicked over and shot in front of them on the street. Meanwhile, you know, um, Pran is like telling the journalists, get in the car, let's go, let's go. And you just hear off screen the shots three times. And you know that all three of those guys that they had on their knees, the same time as a journalist got shot. And my dad pauses the film and he says, I was walking around Vientiane as a young boy and I was wearing bell-bottom pants and like the like leisure suit Larry outfit because that was what was popular back then, right? In the 70s. And I um, remember a soldier who was like not much older than me, young, kicking me over and holding a gun to my face and questioning me because I seemed too Western because I was wearing like what I thought was like the coolest shit clothes ever. You know, he was out acting like a peacock, like, yeah, I'm so awesome. Look at me in my bell bottoms. And then he got accosted and assaulted by the soldier and put in his place for being too Western. And I was just like, oh my God, my dad could have been shot. Like, my dad could have been shot like these dudes. And how do you process that as a child? It just scars you. I feel like that's like you have it as a child and then you go around like with your white friends, probably. I'm being like- yes. Y'all don't have, like, I don't know how I would have, like, put, like as a kid, but, like, it that's going to be so difficult. wild perspective, like, when you go out to the rest of the world with, like, yeah. white people in school and stuff, and you're, like. I remember, because of this film, I have so many stories, you guys, this podcast can I, be, like, a, an all-nighter affair. <laughs> I remember I was with one of my friends. I can't remember, like, if we were at some party or something, and. She didn't get what she wanted from her mother. And she screamed at her mother, I hate you, mom, God. And I like grabbed her and I was like, you never say that to your parents. You never tell them you, they brought you into this world. They fucking keep you fed and watered and you live a cushy ass, this cushy ass life now because of your parents who could have been shot in the war. And she's like, what fucking war? You know? <laughs> What fucking war are you talking about? Holy Crazy? shit. But as oh a child, I didn't understand I just no. all parents were refugees. All parents lived in refugee camps. All yeah. parents had guns held up to them. And my mother got especially emotional over the scene when Pran is just sitting in the, I guess you could call it the re-education facility, oh, mm-hmm. where it's just like they were marching, they were training the little kids to march. And to, yes. you remember? And the kids were saluting and marching. And then they just had all these adults, like super beaten down, super quiet with no results, kneeling and watching them. And then they would start playing on the loudspeaker and someone would walk up and down like, do you speak English? Parlez-vous français? You know, we forgive you for the past. We want to build a new, we want to build a new Angkor. We want, you know, the old ways of Angkor are dead to us, but we want to bring you back as our brothers. And people would raise their hand. Are you a doctor? Were you educated as a doctor or a scientist or a journalist? Were you a journalist? And people would raise their hand. They'd be taken away. Yeah. And they'd hug them and be like, welcome back. Welcome back to like the new revolution, right? And then they disappear because they got fucking killed. And my mother remembers because she was a uh, Francophone educated. She went to the Lycée Vientiane and their education was French. And she remembers that um, she felt in danger. The reason why we immigrated was she felt like it might be untenable for her because she was a valedictorian of her high school and she was French educated. And she was worried that this new 
that this new government would not accept her because she heard about what had happened during the Khmer Rouge. You know what I mean? Right. She knew that that was happening right over the fucking border. I was going to say, like, not very far away, really. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And the Vietnamese were also the main influencers of what was happening. And we were getting bombed Mm -hmm. by the Americans and the Americans didn't tell the Americans that they were like dropping bombs over the Ho Chi Minh Trail in our country. You know, like our government knew about it. And there was there was some infighting in Laos as well, because we were also having our own civil war um, besides the Vietnamese war happening next door. And so my mother was just like, this is not a good such situation for, you know, educated elites. And even though my father was not an educated elite and he is actually Vietnamese, so he was probably more fine. Um, she was just like, we got to go. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am pregnant and we should go. <laughs> so yeah. they left in 70. 70- well, she wasn't pregnant yet. She's like, I want to get pregnant. I want to have a baby. And I'm not going to have a baby in this situation. So mm-hmm. they left in 75. She got pregnant and gave birth in the refugee camp. Holy like, shit. Yes. My brother was born in one of those wow. refugee camps. Holy fuck. And then um, she remembers putting her family in like the, like whatever the fuck aircraft to get to leave the situation. She remembers that. And I watch a movie like Killing Fields and it traumatizes me. And I I had a hard time watching it as an adult, you guys, because it's every bit as traumatic as I remember it as a child, except at least I have context for it now, but in, in a way the yeah. context doesn't make it better. No. I, no. It, <laughs> So I wanted, mm. before we move on, I wanted to, to focus up uh, because the, the scene in which um, Pran is being basically forced into silence was a very like hard hitting moment for me because that he has like an interior monologue because of course he can't talk about it and they need to convey yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, so he's saying he's kind of imagining himself writing to Sydney, his, his fellow yes. American. It also her- keeps him the same too. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's such, it's, it's actually a very smart way of doing it because you can, you can hear his thoughts. It gives us information that we don't have, gives us context, but it's also character driven. And he talks yes. about how he's full of fear. He must have no past because this is year zero and nothing has gone mm-hmm. before here. Only the silence survive. And yes. so you had that. And it, it's such a, it was such a powerful moment for me. And then I went and did some digging and the actor that played him. And I, I, I don't want to butcher his name. Hang, Hang, S. N- Dr. Nagor. Dr. Nga, right. I think it lies. His last name is Nga. Yeah. I'm not sure. So he himself, the actor, was a native of Cambodia. Before the war, he was a physician and a medical officer in the Cambodian army. He became a captive of the Khmer Rouge and was imprisoned and tortured. And so he, in order to escape execution, he had to deny that he was a doctor. So I'm, I'm hearing all of this. I'm hearing yes. what your mom was talking about. It, it's, it's just ringing so true here. And so he managed to move to the U.S. as a refugee in 1980 and then eventually he would go on and make this be in this film and get an Oscar for it. But yes. his, the way that his story is, is it feels like, I don't know, it, it brings like an air of like authenticity to the scenes that we're seeing in, in that movie, mm-hmm. because he himself went through basically that. And it's so that thought right there of like life and, and art just kind of commingling together is so ugh, it's, it just left me like breathless at that scene. I mean, the reality is, you know, life is so much more 
is so much bigger and more extreme and more disgusting Mm -hmm. and revolting than art can be. I believe that art comes from our life experiences. Art Mm -hmm. comes from lived experiences. So like art can only express so much compared to what people actually had to go through. And so this doctor went through that. Um, went through that. My parents went through that. And like so many other people went through that. You look at most Southeast Asian faces in America, the next time you're like just walking around and they probably have some kind of history that relates to that. And you just think about that. That's, that's interesting that you bring that up because it's another thing I wanted to touch on with this movie is that like, you know, in American school systems, we learn a lot about the Vietnam war and we, but we don't, I did not learn anything about what happened in Cambodia no. um, when I was in school. Yeah. And you and, don't but, also learn what actually happened during the Vietnam war too. Nope. Oh, absolutely. Oh, drop the, you know, what is it? Agent orange on us and how we're, Oh yeah. We still it's, have people now who are affected by agent orange mm-hmm. we still have bombs in Laos now i was gonna say there's still it happens often. actually someone just recently died recently from uh accidentally detonating an unexploded ordinance out there and um you, we don't know this it's not taught so yeah they teach a super sanitized version of vietnam war and uh it's when sydney is super pissed because he's trying to get to where the Americans are actually bombing and denying that they're there. And he gets there and he realizes that the Americans have brought their own journalists and are giving them this yeah. guided tour of that area that they've like yep. shelled out mm-hmm. uh, so that they can feed a sanitized version of the story to the American press. I just laughed a little bit because I was just like, we're here in this age now. We're always talking about, you know, the MAGAverse going like fake news, fake news. And I was like, you guys don't even know the extent of it. Like fake news, fake history, and yet fake history, yeah, super fake history. And now they're all crying about wanting to teach advanced, like sociological studies about, like for instance, critical race theory. They uh. don't even understand what the fuck critical race theory is. First of all, it's a higher education learning process, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't teach children critical race theory. Um, you teach like fucking lawyers or people going into political science, critical race theory. So unless unless your five-year-old is like working on his law degree or working on becoming a diplomat, I don't think that they need to worry. But what is wrong with teaching people about the atrocities that have been committed in our world? And not only that, what is wrong with teaching people about how we have archaic laws and we have archaic statutes that still affect marginalized people that still affect refugees and still affect people of color you know um but that whole fake history and sanitized version the sanitized version of the story that's what's really impacting because in 1984 they were talking about it in this film Mm -hmm. and look at us now in 2022 like christ how much have we progressed not much not much maybe not zero but like close to zero and like what's going on i know that um terry was texting me last night about how the line where nixon says like we're not going to have any involvement in cambodia but su- provide support like is similar to what we're hearing now with ukraine what's going on in ukraine like yeah. oh yes. we're gonna this is such have a any weird involvement it's just a weird very watch. weird time it's to be watching it it's just weird bizarre. for me to watch it and we're adults and i don't think that any of us have ever imagined that this could happen in our lifetime right that this could affect us mm-hmm. like a war in europe my God, like who in the world thought that this was going to happen? 
the Ukraine thing super affects me right now because I am a child who's a product of war. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm a child who is a product of refugees. And I'm seeing these Ukrainians fleeing their country or like seeking shelter. And some of them are going to have to be in these temporary internment camps, not internment camps, but like, you know, refugee, uh, refugee camps, camps and stuff. Yeah. And they're going to be children who have to immigrate to new countries and learn a new culture and um, possibly be persecuted for coming from a place that's foreign. And it's wildly deja vu-like for myself. I mean, Ukrainians are Occidental and they look white. Mm-hmm. So maybe they'll, um, the children, if they're fluent in whatever language they learn in their new, um, their new Western country, well, they're Western, but you know, in their new home, wherever mm-hmm. they relocate, maybe they can fit in a little better than I could. But I remember um, my brothers and I, mainly myself as a, as a small girl, not being able to fit in initially and having a lot of judgments passed because I look like this, you know, right. like, I'm not white enough to be American. And I hope that that doesn't ever happen when they move to like Canada or America or to France or to Germany, that people would be like, you know, racist to them or just because they had to leave their fucking war torn country. They had to literally pick up what they could carry and run out of their homes as the building crumbled behind them. It's really traumatic. I've been having a lot of nightmares about it, but also because yeah. I'm saddened, not just by the Ukrainian situation, but by the fact that there's so much news about it. And the junta in Myanmar has been also committing genocide and has have been massacring their own people um, yep. and have been persecuting a lot of the um, a lot of their own people. And they've completely taken over the country. Like literally they had an uprising and overthrew their own government. It's been more than a year now, I believe. And I've had friends and acquaintances that had to flee. I know people who are in a refugee camp right now um, whose film played at the Oldenburg Festival, film festival while I was there. And who the directors of the festival are like trying to find ways to help them or to send them things. And nobody gives a shit. And I always wondered, you guys, is it because they're brown? Like, do they not make the news because they're not white enough? Right. You know, the, the shit is happening. The shit that's happening in Myanmar and Yemen. I feel like I never hear about it. I don't hear about it. But it's it's equally bad, actually. <laughs> well, well yeah. they don't have the same resources. They don't have the same resources that. Um, but they Ukraine also has probably maybe, don't. Yeah, they don't play the same importance in like the Western political theater. I right. think to, they don't they have don't the have, natural gas line. They don't. They have don't have the salt, the, like the, the deep water port that won't. The, yeah, like they don't have the precious the precious metals or whatever, right? That like everyone's trying to get right now, and they don't have the grain that Ukraine has. That like right now we're looking at like a huge scarcity coming up with climate change, and so maybe they don't seem as important as what's happening now. You know. Or there, I mean, what's happening there? Yeah, and you know, when I was taught, like, I didn't know about anything that happened with the Cambodian genocide when I was a kid because no one taught it. Yeah. But I it wasn't taught. I knew about it because my stepdad worked with a quite a few Cambodian refugees at his job. He used to work at the World Bank in Washington D.C. in food service. Uh-huh. There were a lot of um, uh, yeah. It's a lot, actually. I don't. I don't know how many, but there was like a actually like a big number of Cambodian refugees who were working there mm-hmm. because they had 
fleed the country and yes. would tell him like casually drop stories about like how they watched their families get murdered. And like, he would come home and tell me these stories. And he's like, so just remember like how good we have it here. And like, you're living in this great life. And like, these people are now washing dishes and they look at what yeah. they escaped. And like, like mm-hmm. that gave me a huge perspective as like a white kid growing up in like a pretty nice, like relatively nice suburban mm-hmm. middle-class home because mm-hmm. I like didn't have that. And my stepdad would always just be like, told me who Pol Pot was and was just like, so just be happy that like, you're lucky that you've never had to deal with that. And like, yeah. I guess I'm thankful for you that. You were injected but from your own home say- in your own country. <laughs> exactly. You know what I like, yeah. Or put through a labor camp, you know? I know. And he was just like telling me like just the details. And I was like, I wish you weren't telling me this, but I know you, I know no, it's good that it's you good are. No, it's oh, good it was, But he was like, yeah. because these people, like these people he worked with would just like, casually drop these stories because like that was their lives like they would just tell them at work and he'd be like holy shit and like getting these first person accounts every day at work from and like and one of them was the nicest woman I've ever met and always gave her family presents and I just like her name was Mimi (laughs) and she was just the nicest person ever and I just like remember these people and like being so thankful that to know them for a lot of reasons but also just really realizing how like colonialism has so fucking shaped the way that we learn and how u.s colonial control has really fucked up so many parts of the world you know in a lot of southeast asia and not even just american but colonialism in general and how like we don't learn about these horrific things except for like the movies like the killing fields when they decide to make an oscar like and I have some, I have some issues with this movie and I'm curious if you guys do too, in terms of how it feels like Oscar bait a little bit, like one, I know this is an incredibly important movie because not a lot has mm-hmm. been made about this atrocity. And I think it's very important, but it also does feel a little trauma porny at mm-hmm. parts, but I also don't have the context that you have Maddie of watching it, like with your family and like it being so true, like it, it, it is being like true to that experience. So I guess like, I'm not sure if like my perspective at first I did think that because I rewatched it again for you guys and uh, yeah in the beginning the first half of the film did feel like that and uh it was difficult for me also to see the film was so like uh occidental perspective mm-hmm. but then yes halfway through the film it becomes the friends film yes. and they did this like they did this amazing uh hero switch right the main character was Sydney and then they switched it and became Dupin. And I was like, oh. And then I, I felt better about it. I have to admit, I did feel yeah. those vibes. Yeah. I felt better about it because it became the story. Yeah, in the beginning, I was like, I can't tell how I feel about this being so told from the Occidental perspective. I'm glad you said that because like the beginning part of this movie, some of it felt very, um, I mean, there's moments of, of of heightened melodrama. There's the moment in particular that like stayed with me is is right as, as Pran is being like taken out of the embassy and he's leaving. And the focus is on uh, Sydney and it's raining and it's like this very like, theatrical moment of like it's pure like, melodrama he's like crying and the music is so loud and boisterous but it's focusing on him and his pain yeah. by the fact that this man is being taken to yeah. uh, to, to life is about to be ruined exactly you know? and then you know. but i i agree with you i'm glad that, that we we're talking about this last half because it's when i think the movie becomes its its own thing because yes. i like the way in which it kind of mirrors the journey between Sydney and the United States safe and prawn because Sydney is getting a Pulitzer. He's getting all of this like attention for, for bringing, you know, 
insight into this war and the horrible stuff that's happening over there. And he's not willing to publicly um, admit that, you know, he's the reason that Pran is probably stuck in this camp while he is celebrating. Like there's all of that. And then it cuts so smartly to what's happening to Pran and he's being in these re-education camps and he's like Mm -hmm. seeing all of the like forced labor and and all of that kind of things. I just think it's such a smart way to, Kind of, I I mean, this was, I think, for Western audiences in a lot of ways as like a teaching tool. And it starts off as being Mm -hmm. this sort of entry point that we're following these well-known actors. I wonder that, like, was it so that it was, you could be, it could be more understandable and palatable. Yeah. And then you could transition to the character that you don't associate with so easily and so well. And this is one of the things that I kind of didn't like about the film was like, do we feel the sympathy and pity for their for the Asian because the white people do. And this is how we get Mm. white people to notice or to learn or to know about what's happening is that we need this white protagonist first to like hold us, um, lead us into it, which maybe we did back then. And maybe, I don't know, like- yeah, and like in the 80s, think about the 80s, like I think we had to, I think it was like one of those sad realities that you had to like have this like handsome white guy journalist yeah. be like the entry point. And yeah. the other thing that was, I think that kind of stuck out of my brain was they talk about other Cambodian journalists, but like why Pran? And I think that might also just be like, not, not a story problem, but also just like in general, like why how did he get lucky? Like, why was he the one Cambodian journalist? They were all trying. Yeah, there were a lot of other Cambodian journalists. There were a lot of other Cambodian doctors and there were a lot of other Cambodian professionals, you know? Exactly. Um, I was very happy to hear Prime's story, but like, I I don't know. And maybe like, I I don't know these people in real life. Um, I know Lord Byron, who was a producer of the film. I've met him before. And, um, he even admitted to me that there were moments that had to be dramatized so that it would be great for the film. You know what I mean? And I can't remember which one it was. I think he told me it was like the bathroom scene during the award. Right. I think that's what it was Mm. um, that was dramatized so that it could be like extra impacting, which is, yeah, I understand it's. um, And I do admire that the film has a semi-documentary feel to it, but I just um, don't want to, to feel like, it's white saviory and sometimes right. it almost feels like it whereas pan himself pan himself was like super strong and stalwart and what he was a survivor he was a fucking survivor and so were all these other people and like the character of the, the leader whose son that he became a nanny for right he started to take care of the son mm-hmm. um even he was a lot more like the characters that my parents encountered in life and that I do know in real life where it's like, I'm going with this. I love my country and I don't agree with everything that the Khmer Rouge are doing. And I don't agree with how we're doing it, but I do believe there needs to be a change. And if this is how we start, if this is how we open the door towards the change and I'm in a position of power to be able to, veer that change towards right this is what i have to do first and that character even though he wasn't a very big character he was a pretty minor character that is a reality of a lot of people here in lao like my producer is one of those people my producer stayed in in lao he's a french speaker he is an educated elite and he stayed in lao and his parents went to france imagine that your parents left and you stayed yeah, and he's like the same age as my mother. Maybe he's like a year or two, a couple years older than her. And he held down port here 
push when it. he was like supposed to be entering university. You know what I mean? He held down fort here and he was, it was like they wanted to put their eggs in multiple baskets and we don't know how fucked up shit's going to get here. So some of us are going to have to separate from our families and loved ones. And if shit gets bad here, hopefully we can go meet you there. Or if shit gets good here, maybe you can come back, you know? And Yeah. Well, and like nobody should have to go through that separation. No, and like Pran goes through this. And I think there's like obviously a lot of questions about like, did he stay because of Sydney or did he stay because he wanted to report on it? And I think there's not I think a clear it's all I think, of the above. Oh, I don't I think, think it is too black and oh. white answer, you know. I agree. And unfortunately for Pan, it's not even like he chose to stay. Like my producer Dominey chose to stay. Do right. you know what I mean? Unfortunately mm-hmm. for Pan, he like he was a prisoner in his own country. Well, yeah, and like in the movie, I feel like he has he feels like he has an obligation to stay and report and show what's going on. And like I think in the movie, they sometimes want us kind of they try they not they feel like they want to be like oh it's all sydney's fault but it definitely is very it's not that black and white i think it is very much it's like not a, black and white no and it's also like, well, i should stay and like you know have an obligation like an obligation to my country and to report on it and it's like you no know, again with this idea of telling the truth about what's actually happening here and like giving a perspective on it and being there to give your as a cambodian person your perspective on it not just like a white guy's new yeah. york times perspective on it yeah one of the things that I noticed in the film that I don't think it's brought up very often is uh, just the amount of privilege that the white people have. I'm not oh, saying mm-hmm. that they didn't face down death. They were also like knocked down to the ground, had rifles in their face. They also didn't know uh, when a building would explode or not. They were also huddling in the embassy, in the French embassy, wondering how they were going to get out and getting onto convoys to get out as well. But there was always a sense of entitlement and privilege where it's like, American U.S. passport, U.S. Yeah. passport. Let me through. Like I'm like better. You that know, was like- the thing that that jumped out at me watching this for sure. Is is the there? There's the moment early on in the film where um, Sydney and Prawn and um, a bunch of people are. No, I think it's just the two of them get um, arrested and they're held in a, in a camp and. And Sydney is just and he's pissed just off. Like, I'm bust out. I'm yeah, he's like, I got a story. I got to get to New York. And he's yeah. like, I'm an American and citizen like, and I am walking out of here. Killed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're get us killed. And this kind of privilege that he's like throwing around, all the other Americans are throwing around. You see them also. They're like uh, eating at these ultra nice cafes with these like Cambodian the swimming pool that scene. serve them. The swimming the pool embassy, scene. Right? But the embassy is like they do service. have. It's the like embassies that. are where they can escape. Like there are safe zones for them. And then when there are Cambodian refugees like, at those embassies, the Rouge are like, no, we give us the Cambodians that are we behind their the walls Cambodians and back. they get to stay behind these, like these little yeah. walls of protection. And hang out with their champagne and the piano and the pool. And I'm not saying it's luxurious. Of course, they're all crowded in there, but I'm not even talking about that moment. I'm not even talking about earlier, whenever they're in a dinner scene or going out to meet someone uh, to discuss something, it's like at a fancy hotel with drinks, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. Posh mm-hmm. bistro or et cetera. Like places that catered to the white people who were yeah. there. Do you know what I mean? And the waiters spoke French to them or yeah. spoke English to them. And I can't help but wonder, you guys, and this is, I'm not saying that this is the case. Like I said, I don't know these actual people. If in a way, Pan didn't also feel a little bit protected because he was in this aura of the white privilege. And he felt maybe like, I mean, of course they worked together and they had an amazing relationship, but maybe he felt like he was going to be safer. Maybe he was going to get away because he was 
um, surrounded by so much of this white privilege that maybe he fell into that like mentality, not realizing that as a Cambodian, that wasn't something that was offered to him. I, that I, wasn't an opportunity that was that come to him. I completely agree because there's the moment where um, they're at the 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 embassy and the Cambodian people are being taken out and there's a moment where he's able to escape. There's people and they're going to escape to Thailand. And there's that moment where he's like standing there. There's um, a bunch of Cambodians about to, to like make their escape. And he stays because there's that idea. I think of that, that whole white privilege that is surrounding them of like, Oh, we're going to get you a passport. We're going to fake it up. We're going to do all of this. You're going to so, be fine because you're right. protected by us. And we have this power because we white. Right. We white business. <laughs> You know what I mean? I felt that, you guys. And of course, I never felt that as a child. No, but like watching it now as a 40-year-old woman, I was just like, ah, this feels, I don't know. I felt, I was uncomfortable with it. I have to admit, I was very uncomfortable with that. I was kind of uncomfortable with the way the movie ended, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Oh, with the big hug with Sydney and the big hug. And yes, because it's like. He- all the faces of the poor brown folk. Like looking at them longingly in this fancy car and this white guy with this fancy button-up shirt. Oh my god, a shirt with buttons and like just these portraits of the brown people. I thought that was a bit tacky myself too. Yeah, yeah it just it the, the final like prawn has gone through literal hell. We've seen him walk when the the most horrifying moment that I think goes into a pure horror film moment is when he stumbles into this water and there's skeletons and there's bones because he's fi- he's oh, found the killing so field. Yeah, it's a, so it was horrible. it was such a horror movie moment. It, it reminded me a little bit of uh you know um Poltergeist where she falls in the pool and there's like skeletons in there. Like that's yes. what immediately came into my mind. He's walking here and he has found the killing field. He has found where yes. two million Cambodians were, were 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 dumped yeah. exactly. And so he's gone through that. He's gone through having to carry this this kid who ends up getting stuck on a landmine and exploding. Like this is horrific stuff. And he gets to the end. I sobbed so hard during oh. that the, the scene with the landmine um, because like he really loves that child. And then the father of that child who has been shot um, and who was trying to make a change. And he goes out and he's like, I need to stop them from all just killing each other. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he has entrusted his child to him. And the child is like, you see a lot of kids like this during this time period where they're toddlers, they're young, they don't know what's happening, but yet they know the danger. And you see that child's like being silent knows when to wake up the adults and to warn them because they are living through something that no child should ever have to experience. And yet they have this maturity that like you don't see in like our soft Western children, you know, like Mm -hmm. you don't see that. And then he gets his friend who's carrying him steps on an ordinance on a landmine and he takes his child and gives him a cremation. I like, that scene ripped me apart. I had to pause and take a break, you guys. I, I literally had to pause and take a break when, at that moment because it was just so hard. Now I understand why my mother can, could not watch this film. Yeah. But I also think the film uses children in a very interesting way because the movie starts with, there's a lot of... Uh, a I'm lot of the don't exploit them. Not like no. that end scene with all the faces, but right. in the whole movie, it's not so explained. I don't know. No. Like That end scene was kind of weird, but I was like, it's the 80s. It's the 80s. I just the, the whole the whole thing that bothered me is that like he goes through all of this and he's standing there and then all of a sudden there's Sydney like a white knight savior just standing there and is next next to a limo and you know and they go and they yeah. hug and it's like everything is happy and everyone's forgiven I'm like um and no. there's like that little group of 
people that sit standing by the car watching them that are probably like what the fuck is happening but it's why but it's also like a romance movie ending Mm -hmm. so like Maybe we can talk a little bit about the weird, I think get some like some tension, some sexual tension between these two characters in this movie, because at the end of the movie, Pran jumps on him. Like you yeah. see at the Raps end of a rom-com and like wraps his leg, which I love. Like, I think that's amazing. Like it's incredible, but it has that kind of like romance movie ending to it where it's like the man steps out of the car looking very nice and she wraps like the <laughs> legs and it's just like I had a in- it like that Mary Beth oh my god well, well and I was texting Terry watching this because there is like some homoeroticism in this mm-hmm. movie like there's a lot of these like the very reason why I didn't feel it I think it's because we Southeast Asians are super like touchy-feely like that you know what I mean mm. um that also could it be it and that's me being western and yeah. like seeing it that way like that could yeah, just also be me southeast asians are super strange about that because we are not hugging people in terms of like parents and children so like you know i didn't grow up in this family that was like always showing affection um but yet at the same time when you're out with your buddies and friends it is not uncommon to see like a bunch of young drunk men in lao and cambodia like just all hanging all over each other and like you know grabbing on each other like that and then like koreans too like koreans are always like hugging on each other and like like super touchy-feely and um i think how i saw it is like i would react the same way regardless of like what gender stepped out of that car because it's like this reunion after like so many years of fucking awful hardship. Like how yeah. you not be so excited and so yeah. happy to see someone that you thought someone who is your best friend and you had to mentally tell yourself every day that they didn't abandon you. They didn't abandon you. They didn't abandon you. He's going to come for me. He's going to come for me. And he does. He does come for him at the, at the end. And in real life he did too, by the way, he actually, once he heard that Nupran was in uh, Thailand, he flew to Thailand like immediately. And like it wasn't just that ending part that gave me that vibe though, because if, if it was just that one scene, I that would again like oh one hundred percent anyone. But there's these like glances that they exchange throughout this movie that are really tender and have like like there's scenes where Sid will like kind of look at him and like for a, like a long like a, a long period of time or like bite his lip or Pran will maybe like bite but bite his lip a little bit looking at each other and there's a one scene in particular I think it's when they're in the French embassy mm-hmm. and it's about the passports and like their arms kind of intertwine in this really beautiful way ah, I don't remember that Sid touches his hand and like they're looking at each other and it looks like a shot out of a romance movie the way it's, it's filmed beautiful. Wow. the way it's framed and mm-hmm. it's like this really there's an intimacy between the two of them that you don't see a lot between men and movies and again like maybe it is just intimacy between male friends but there's something very charged about their relationship that I really and I like just because it added this like tension to their relationship and it, it added the stakes of between the the love between the two of them. Well, regardless of what the intimacy came from or how the intimacy comes, regardless of whether it's charged in a sexual way or not, or in a respect, like respect driven, like he's impressed by him or this brotherly way, it's intimacy, you Mm -hmm. guys. Like it's intimacy. It's intimacy. And it's it's a a bond, right? It's a bond. And that is something that... um, it's not common to display that in film with males between two males, but it's real. Like, I think that uh, maybe you feel that way, that tension and that charge, because we're so unaccustomed to seeing it on screen. 
yeah. because men have to be like distant and men have to be cold and men can't be like that. Right. And in real life, like the relationship that they built was extremely intimate. And I don't mean in a sexual way either. They're like, oh yeah. But hundred percent. Yeah. They were tied together in a, in a survivalist way, in a familial way and in a brotherly way. And so um, I could see why you would feel that. And I think that that's kind of beautiful, but hopefully we'll get to see more of that on screen. And I kind of like that we see it and it's not necessarily homoerotic because um, of course I'd love to see that too, like a more open, more open male sexual tension on screen. That's wonderful. But I'd also like to see it in this platonic way or in this respectful way in this, um, I admire you and you are my, you are my equal kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, and I love you, but on a different level because then it could be more common and it could be more expressed in the real world as well. I think we shun that in our society. Oh, we definitely do. Mm-hmm. And again, like for 1985, this was again, pretty incredible because yeah. this is an era where there's a lot of terror around like any kind of male intimacy and like very much like. Or males not being ultra masculine. Yeah. Exactly. And so in I particular. think this movie, yeah. I think this movie is doing something with that really well and showing like love between two men. And like, you know, maybe they went overcorrected if they wanted to, but regardless, there is like a love you can feel between the two of them that is like unmistakable and is so important to this movie, not just being about like a white guy finding a resource in Cambodia, but like friends who went through a fucking horrific trauma together and they want to come back together. And it's a re- it's a re- reunification story, not about two lovers, but about two best friends who have finally been able to come back together after tragic, traumatic, horrific circumstances. I still worry, though, Mary Beth, like that it wasn't equal. That the way they portrayed oh, that, like yeah, there were yeah. beautiful moments like that, and like you said, the intimacy was amazing between the two men and the relationship and the bond that they had. But uh, sometimes I felt like it was not so well balanced whereas we saw that with the friend more towards sydney and sydney sometimes treated him like just a fixer you know yeah i was really happy whenever he called pran a journalist whenever he called pran a journalist or whatever pran would say i'm a journalist too you know it made me so happy they don't lean into him being a journalist as much it's always like you said Not like, he's like no. they're the one he's like he's getting them yeah. into the bombed parts of cambodia yeah. like he's they're the one that's... just like a fixer which i hate this term because people call me fixer all the time when they want to come make a movie in lao or in southeast asia and they treat me like the way uh sydney treats Duke Pran, um because I can get them access and I can get them to the places that they need to be in the locations and I can translate for them. But then um, sometimes they forget that like, okay, you're making your like happy little like white perspective movie of my country. And like, don't forget, I am also a director and producer. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like I may be doing your fixing work for you, but you know, like, the the relationship here is like I'm not just some dumb person who's like, Madam, please, Madam, please, can we please film here, Madam, Madam, your chickens, can I have three chickens to film, Madam, Madam? No, fuck that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I worry a little bit. I was happy that they did start to show Sydney in the um the same emotional uh in the same emotional expression as did, but then. There was all. There were moments in the beginning where I thought that it was not equal. That was more. No. We saw Pan's oh, 
the the moments. I was like, mad about that at the beginning. I was definitely getting yeah. like, "Ooh, I don't like this at all. I don't like this vibe whatsoever." It, for me, it wasn't really even even when the passport didn't work and everybody was like sad that the passport photo uh, didn't develop. Even at that moment, of course, they're all upset and etc. But I didn't feel like they understood how shitty it was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until he was accepting the prize and having to like face down one of his old friends and having to think, say out loud the huge human rights violations that America committed um, to this audience of posh people. And him like realizing how absurd it is that he's standing there at this podium in his suit, watching everybody in their posh like table. Right. And realizing that he let, left the Pratt behind. He doesn't even know what the killing fields are like. He doesn't even know what the labor camps are like. He hasn't even seen them because they hadn't happened yet while he was there. Yep. And that's when I started to feel like, okay, now we're starting to gravitate this character towards uh, a mutual respect. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Yeah. So the killing fields, you know, that scene you were talking about, Terry, where you said that he falls into that horrible quagmire of bodies uh, and they're rotting and it's fetid and there's like bones. Um, you know, it's filmed in a way where it looks like, uh, like I said, the kind of docudrama that, mm-hmm. uh, that the whole film kind of feels like. But as a filmmaker now who, who was so traumatized and scarred by this, I remembered that really clearly, by the way. In fact, when I saw him leave, the rice paddies and start to walk out in that dirt area, I knew it was you coming. Know, yeah. And it was so vivid in my head as a child that as an adult, I knew exactly what it looked like. And it still was the same. That's how, that's how much it burned a, a hole into my like heart and head. Like really, I was so scarred by that. But I, as an adult, all I could think of was like, if I were to film this as a horror film director, how would I shoot that? And like, how would I like that? And it was kind of weird to watch this film because like I said, it's not really a horror film, but it is a horrific film. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how would it feel to like shoot this from the genre perspective and shoot this with a genre lens and a horror lens, because it would still work. It would still work, you know? Absolutely. I was curious though, because it, with your, your train of thought about seeing this as a kid and then as an adult, and you said both times you were traumatized. Was it the same? Do you think it's the same kind of trauma as when you saw it as a kid, or is it a different kind of trauma revisiting it as an adult? Um, I have to admit that understanding it and knowing the context mm-hmm. helped a lot as an adult. So I can't say that it's exactly the same kind of trauma. And as cool as it seemed that my dad did that to us and as like, fucking hardcore as it was and he would like make us watch this tell us not turn away pause it and explain it to us in a way even as a child i had a weird context for it i understood it in a different way than just any like for instance if just any child doesn't matter where they're from or what their background was any child at my age at that age had watched it uh i think i felt very fortunate that my dad would stop the film and tell us his similar experiences or the experiences of the people of Cambodia um, at that time. Um, but as an adult, now that I have like learned some history about Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge and about the Vietnam War and the revolution in Laos um, and even the Indochina War, I do feel like it's in, in some ways it's a different kind of trauma, but in a, in a way more traumatic yeah. because mm. like, 
you don't think about it as a child as how can humans do this to each other? But as an adult, you really feel that. You really feel like, how is it that we are grown ass people and that we can make these kinds of decisions that lead to this, you know? So in a way, I think it's a little bit worse yeah. to see it as an adult. Yeah. As a, as a child, you're just like, horror, terror. Oh my God, bodies. Oh my God, gunshot. Oh, horrible, horrible. And then it, it just kind of lives in your head like that as these moments of terrible shock, right? But as an adult, it's even worse when those moments of instant shock have context and the context isn't better. Yeah. Yeah. So this is why everybody should go back home and realize how good life is, no matter how bad things seem, no matter how much you hate your fucking parents, uh, like be grateful because life ain't bad. You know, life ain't bad, y'all, unless you happen to be in a war zone like the people in <laughs> Yemen or in Myanmar or in Ukraine. Like things are pretty yeah. okay. That's that's something else as an adult I realized too because like um, I am Lao and Vietnamese and Thai and I noticed something. I've been to many countries in Southeast Asia. I know many Southeast Asian people. And generally, we are really kind human beings. Really happy, really nice, really willing to help, really outgoing and uh, adaptable, very mm -hmm. adaptable, and happy to like make and meet new friends and approach people and accept people for who they are. Like, okay, you're that weird person that does that, but like, it's cool, I guess that's you, right? But that's the Southeast Asian personality. I can't believe that we can be like that despite all the trauma and all the pains and all the scars that we have from being, uh, from having a history like that, from having been refugees or immigrants, from having had a lived through genocide. Cambodians have had multiple genocides. Yeah. And their, their genocide is one of the hugest, I believe. I, I can't recall, but I believe that in world history, the Cambodians had one of the largest genocides that happen in their country as well as in Myanmar um, there's genocide happening now in Myanmar but if you meet a Burmese person holy shit they're so fucking nice you can approach a Cambodian like a stranger in Phnom Penh or especially in the countryside and just be like if they're eating dinner be like hey I'm hungry do you mind if I sit down with you and eat your food and they'd let you like they'd be like yeah sure join the table who the fuck are you um why are we like this even though we've seen like this crazy trauma but then I look at Americans I look at Canadians and I don't mean the immigrants I mean like the white people and they haven't gone through any of that shit they haven't survived anything like that and they're so fucking like parody like they're out there at Target like um excuse me can I talk to your manager oh my god my coffee is like way too cold and like ah you, you have, like, no education. That's why you're a barista. And, like, I need to talk to your manager because I said soy latte, not milk. Not I, I am, like, lactose intolerant. I'm, like, fucking lactose intolerant, bitch. You drink what's put in front of you. I know what starvation <laughs> feels like. You know? Yeah. Like, shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God, it's not soy. Like, go to hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, like, that's, like, I mean, just from, like, my experience, like, uh. the people that my stepdad worked with, 
who were from Southeast Asia were the nicest people and the most generous and the ones Mm -hmm. to always like give him gifts for the kids who they never met. And like, were always giving us presents and always trying to feed us and like, we're the nicest people. And then meanwhile, my mom was like, why are they so nice to us? Like, I don't understand. And I'm like, and it's just like, like, it's just so, you know, that again, puts things into perspective about like what I've seen and just like kind, amazing, generous human beings. We're just like, very focused on family, but family as like a concept, not just about your blood, but about the people around you and like taking care of those around you. This is very big for us Southeast Asians. We consider you family, you're family. Mm -hmm. Like I could adopt you. We have words for this. Like the word dear sister, from my last film, that is a term that we use for like you're my beloved sister or you're my beloved brother, little brother. So Nong is little brother or little sister, like okay. sibling, younger sibling. And Hap means beloved or love. And so if I were to call you my Nong Hap, it would mean like you're my sister and I will treat you like family. You are my family, but we have no relation. We have no blood ties. And we have this, this concept, like I love that. it's That's not common one. in the States or in the West. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> I don't understand. And then we still call each other in our languages, brother and sister. In my language, if you speak to another male, you call him and he's older than you, you call him I, which means brother. If you speak to a girl, you say lay, which means sister. So I'm calling like fucking stranger, sister and brother. Well, you have that in the long walk. Yeah. Like you have people yes. called uncle, brother, brother sister. Uncle, like auntie, it's... uncle, auntie, mother, father. Yeah. Like, like it's not unusual. All my like everyone yeah. call them Mr. Like, Mr. Petmani or Mr. Suwana Wong, I call them father. I do. Mm. And that's just how it is in our country. Just like when I go to Cambodia, my other friends who are in film and who are younger than me, they call me Bong, meaning like also older sibling, like older sister. They call me sister. They don't call me like Miss Doe or Maddie or they call me Bong Mappy. I think even like our language embraces that closeness, that community, you know, which I find, um, Sometimes it makes me sad that I feel like it's lost in a lot of Western cultures. Yeah. The yeah. sense of community. Yeah. Yeah. This is like an ultra depressing podcast. <laughs> it's incredible. I love it. I was going to say, do we want to wrap up and start giving this our writing yeah. out of five for this? Terry, how much resiliency out of five do you give the killing fields? <laughs> you know, I was, I, as I was watching this movie last night, I was thinking about how in high school we were taught like American history. I was thinking about how it was a whole year course and how most of American history class was focused around the the war for independence. And by the time we get to the end of the year, we were getting up to like world war one and world war two. And then it stopped because it was the end of the year. And it's like, well, we ran out of time. And so there's like, I, I get to this point where even though the book continued onward and who knows, I don't know how much it would cover back in like, this would have been like the early nineties. Yeah. It would have been about mid nineties when I was in high school taking this class. Mm. And I don't know how much further it would cover, but I kept thinking about how as a, as a kid who was born in the eighties, the amount of lack of knowledge that I had of Mm. history, American history, world history from like, I don't know, the early 1900s up until my birth had no idea, had no idea. And the only times it would come up were the big moments of like, yeah, oh, yeah, the Vietnam War, what bad, World War II, greatest war ever, World War One, like that was all I had to to encompass, 
any kind of history. And so watching this movie sent me down like a lot of Google rabbit holes because I Mm -hmm. unfortunately was unaware of any of this because it was never taught to me and it was never something that was like, here's something to learn. And so I think from that regard, I think this movie is very successful. I do think there are some parts of it that are very much still the white savior narrative in a lot of aspects of it, even Mm -hmm. though it does try to um, subvert that a bit in the second half. I do think that this is still all about Sydney reconciling his grief for leaving his friend behind. I think there's still a lot of that. And um, so I, I think as, as, as a whole, I, I thought this movie was really, was really good. I probably would give it, I think four resiliency out of five, because I do think there are some issues with it that kind of made me feel icky watching it still, but I think it's a very important movie and I am incredibly glad that I finally have seen it and started to like learn a bit about history that is never really taught to us Americans. So yeah, that's, that's my rating. What about you, Mary Beth? I also give it four for a lot of the same reasons. I think it's an incredibly important movie. I think it's told from a lens that is not sanitized because it's not a sanitized movie, but again, (laughs) I think it is a white audience lens, but unfortunately with like the way Hollywood is, I think that was um, but was important to having this film be as recognized as it was. Um, this movie gave me nightmares. This doesn't happen a lot, but this movie actually gave me nightmares about me being put in categories with my family, um, mm-hmm. which obviously as a white person who grew up in America with no like immigration background or like, it was a very weird, like, you know, I've never experienced that and been through that. So this movie gave me nightmares about what that, what that could look like. And I have a lot of fears of war that, because I don't, I've just been an anxious person. And like, again, I've never been through that. So it just like gave me a very new perspective on my own weird anxiety and how like, Hey, this is a real thing that happened to real fucking people. And like, you're so fucking lucky. And I'm really glad we could talk to you, Maddie, about it, because I think you bring a very personal perspective to this movie for a lot of reasons. And I think it's a great movie. I think it's a hard movie to watch. I think it's Mm -hmm. worth watching. And I also think mostly to like, you know, educate people on yes. parts of the um, American experience that uh, we don't talk about because we weren't really successful and actually we kind of made things fucking worse. And like, yeah. acknowledging oh. that, hey, um, our influence in this world is pretty shitty and like has been going, it's very recent too. So, I mean, it's to this day, right? Yeah. <laughs> like right now <laughs> in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, but Maddie, you have the final word. Um, how much resiliency out of five do you give the killing fields? You know, for myself, you're right. There were a lot of cringy moments. There were a lot of moments where uh, it felt like, of course, this was being told from a white perspective. Mm-hmm. But you're right that it was meant to educate and it was meant to show a side of life and reality that a lot of people wouldn't know about or haven't seen or didn't even realize existed. And I give it a five out of five because I think of Deep Pen. And when I see Deep Pen, <laughs> I see my dad. I see that when people joke about, you know, the wall or immigration or, you know, keeping the country uh, great or keeping it, you know, getting, making sure that there's no uh, big replacement. What is it they call? No, there's no great replacement. The white gene because of us dirty immigrants. I see my family. I see my mother giving birth to my brother in a fucking refugee camp. I remember the house that we lived in 
with my cousins, my uncles, my aunts, and all these people in this tiny space. I remember uh, going to school and being put into ESL, English as a second language, when I actually read before kindergarten because my mother was so nervous about me not fitting in with the white kids. She taught me to read before I entered kindergarten, but I was shy because people were making fun of me and saying that I looked ching chong. And the teachers automatically assumed that I belonged in English for a second language. And the way the American education system works, not only do we not learn about these parts of history and about the human rights atrocities that America itself has committed, um, and the way we sanitize history, even not just outside of our borders, but within America itself. We didn't even know about Oklahoma and the Tulsa, uh, the, the Black Wall Street. We didn't even know about the Emmett Till case. Um, and, we, and we're still going through these moments where we're not being educated. And so I look at the story of deep crime being told, even if it's told through a white lens, and even though... Uh, there were some cringy moments. I just think of what's what he survived, what my mom yeah. and dad survived, and what all all these other immigrants are surviving, and what the Ukrainians are going to have to survive, as well as the Afghanis and the Yemeni and then Burmese. And I have to give it a five out of five because these people, life has to move on. Life has to go on because if life doesn't move on, life doesn't go on. It means they're fucking dead, you guys. You know, yeah. and that's a reality. It means that they're they're underground or that they've been shelled and bombed. And this is something that I think people need to see and need to understand and need to see that like survival isn't just being the final girl of a horror movie. The horror movie is something like in the killing fields where you survive this, you're resilient enough to also not to survive, but to build a new life around it, to continue to survive. And I think about that a lot. Anytime I, face a challenge anytime I face hardships you guys I just think Maddie like put your fucking big girl pants on and get over it because you are not in a refugee camp you are not running out of your house with the clothes on your back and machine gun fire and tanks and bombs exploding around you shit's fine you still have packs of instant ramen to eat there's still mangoes growing on my tree in my front yard i'm like doing okay no matter how bad shit gets yeah. you know? yeah. Yeah. so i give it a five out of five for resiliency and i hope that people can see that like if pran survived it my parents survived it black people continue to survive it latinos continue to survive it Yet here we are in this brave new world with the same old problems. We have to continue to survive it. And I hope that we do. And I hope shit changes and that this brave new world does become something new. Because right now I just see history cycling and repeating itself over and over again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you so Your much, Maddie. Hate this podcast. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> they're not. Like super downer podcast. No, I, that, I, I think that's one of the things that I like about this podcast is that we can go from talking about very silly and frivolous things, and then we can also have an episode that is as important as, as this one. So, um, no, yeah. I, our, our I listeners will love it. I considered something ultra silly and frivolous for this beforehand. I really did because I didn't know if I wanted to talk about something this heavy and this complicated 
because I'm not a political scientist. Right. Actually, my husband is, by the way. He oh. uh, his degree is in political science and diplomacy. So, like, I love whenever he oh, like wow. says something and someone calls him an armchair political scientist. He's like, well, actually, well, actually, <laughs> like, no, literally, I am. Exactly. I'm actually a. <laughs> my degree is uh, in political science, but um, I'm not a political scientist. I don't believe that I have a good uh, repertoire or range of historical knowledge. I don't of historic knowledge, excuse me. And I feel like there's so much more that I could learn and that I could know, but I did think that this was important and that this is real, actual horror, real, actual horror and real life trauma. But then the silly frivolous pick that I was going to go with, which was like kind of scarred me too. And I remember being scared of it when I was a kid was, uh, Michael Jackson's thriller. Understandable. <laughs> yeah, Understandable. I was going to go with that because I didn't want the podcast to be such a downer. No. And it also was something that no one had selected. None of your guests had ever selected before. But I was just like, I think it's important for us to talk about this. It is. And, you know, when you guys offered me this opportunity to speak with you two, the Ukrainian shit had not hit the fan yet. No, no, it had. Like, yeah. It had not. Nope. It did yet. not. Mm-mm. So no. I'm really happy that we're talking about this because of what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in Afghanistan and Yemen, and also in Myanmar. Like I really think we needed to talk about this. You know, I agree, 100. We're only like really scratching glad. the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, but again, like horror can be political, guys, and like this is important. Like we mm. can use horror movies to talk about this stuff, and I think it's important. Like or like we said, horror can be slashers and silly, but also you know it can be a really important way to discuss cultural political stuff so anyway well thank you again maddie for joining us to talk about the killing fields and sharing all of your insight in your movie and all that we we really appreciate it where can our listeners find you and what do you have if there's anything you'd like to plug or talk about i mean my listeners can find or your listeners (laughs) not my listeners they're listening to me right now (laughs) i mean your listeners can find me where they find you right because like I hope that they can find me on the big screen again sometime soon, right? I'm working on a few different projects and I hope that they'll come to light and that they'll be well-received. Life is short. I want to make as many movies as I can and I want to make as many different unique movies as I can. Um, And so I hope that like, I'll continue to be able to do that. And so hopefully they can find me on big screen or they can find me on streaming. Um, you know, The Long Walk is currently in theaters and streaming right now. Um, I think it's on Apple. Yeah, you can rent it. Wrong. You can rent it on Apple, Amazon Prime, all of those big retailers. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I was like, we don't have these things in Laos, and I don't always yep. know. <laughs> yep, they're available through like <laughs> Apple. Privileged lives, y'all. We don't have that shit in Laos. I have to VPN to get that shit. <laughs> Sometimes the <laughs> VPN doesn't work. No, actually, like, um, it's not even that we lack internet. Like, obviously, I'm here on a Zoom call with you. And our internet is not censored, like, in some countries. It's just that they uh, check our credit card. Mm. And they'll be like, oh, we, we're sorry. Like, we can see that you're in a location and we don't service that location. Or we don't take credit cards from this country. And I'm like, you take my fucking money. <laughs> Let me pay you. <laughs> Let me pay you. Let me pay me. I want to watch this movie. But, yeah, they can find me where they find you guys. And are you on social media? Oh, yeah, I am. I'm on the Twitters. I tweet sometimes. I'm on the Instagram. It's the same name, Mango Sodium, okay. after my dog, Mango Sodium, <laughs> uh, who passed away. 
And I'm on Facebook, but Facebook I only use for like people I actually know in person. So right. don't try to add me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Because I will not accept you. (laughs) Um, So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. Uh, What was your experience with the killing fields? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at scarredpodcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.